This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. Sam, do you realize we are now in episode 99? It, it, it's, it has just flown by, man. We don't have any big plans yet for 100. We've discussed a couple things, but haven't locked it down just yet. But if we can come through on a couple of these things, it would be huge. It will be huge, by the way. Sam, uh, I was in Philadelphia last uh, Wednesday and <laughs> Thursday. Sam, I thought I was in Tampa. Good lore was it hot up there. It was Vegas-type heat where it was like a dry heat, and it's still pretty bad. I mean, going out today, just walking my dogs, I just come back like in a puddle of sweat. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, we, you know, I was, we, were, uh, we were walking the streets Wednesday night, you know, going bar to bar, and, uh, yeah, it was pretty hot. I, I re- we went to this one place that apparently must have been the PBR bar. because. Oh, what, you go to Xfinity Live? Uh, no, we were not down there. We were, we were somewhere else. And uh, I was like, are we the only ones in this place not drinking PBR? <laughs> I mean, it was it was crazy. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm, not, it, I'm not a PBR fan. I hope that doesn't take us out of the running for the PBR sponsorship. But uh, I am not a big fan of PBR. I would I think you, that, that's like a beer that you drink when you're in college. Yeah, I think the only, the only time I ever drank PBR was either in college or uh, they do this, uh, you know, food and, and beer festival here in Tampa during the fall, and uh, my buddy loves PBR. And, I, and uh, <laughs> how old is he? Twenty two. <laughs> he's young. He, he's he, he's a little bit younger than I am, but uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, if you follow he, it up with some natty ice. Oof, man. Oof, man. I uh, I, I was uh, I was uh, I was hanging out with my boy Jack Daniels last Wednesday night. So <laughs> I had a good time. A good time in Philadelphia. Uh, I will tell you this: uh, Carson Wentz needs to learn how to slide, Sam. Otherwise, he's going to get killed in the NFL. He already did. Broken, <laughs> broken ribs. Uh, you know, out for the preseason. Great way to develop a young quarterback that you traded up to get in the number yeah. two, two slot. I tell you, Sam, got a huge ovation when he came into the game. I want to say I was in the third quarter, but yeah, it's uh, it's good to have football back as uh, my travel schedule now has heated up as uh, Philly last week, this weekend, had the Jacksonville. Then I get, get a couple weeks at home before crazy. The regular season's almost here. Speaking of the regular season, of course, we have the MMA Insiders Fantasy Football League, and the draft is going to be September the 4th. So Sam is going to be sending out the invites, and so be on the lookout for that. If we have some open spots, we'll we'll come up with some creative way to to get some of the listeners in the, the fantasy football MMA insiders league coming up here. Just it's Sam. It's I, I was having this conversation with a couple people I work with. I was like, I felt like we had just done our last game, and it's already it's already the preseason. Sorry, the preseason, but it's funny. The teams don't really take the preseason seriously because normally when you come in for a regular season game, Jason, you get there. Say if it's on a Sunday, you get there what early Saturday? Uh, Saturday afternoonish, you know. Um, but for, for know, this game though, you weren't even here. You weren't even in Philly for twenty four hours. Uh, no, I was in Philly for more than twenty four hours. We, we, we got that... in. Uh, I want to say right around seven o'clock or so. Um, it did take us a little while to get to the hotel, but uh, I think I got my hotel about eight o'clock, and uh, you know, Friday morning I, I was back at my house at about three o'clock in the morning. That's a quick turnaround. It is. It's it's a business trip, Sam. Get in the city and uh, you know do the game and uh, you know it, for me what I do, Sam, 
it does it, preseason game is just like a regular season game, you know. So, uh, but it's good. It's good to have football back. Uh, I guess I got to start kind of reading up on fantasy football. You know, I, yeah, I have, that would be good. That'd yeah. be good. Unless you want to lose to me again this year. Ooh, already starting the trash talk, huh? What are uh, you, Conor McGregor over there? I'm the Conor McGregor of fantasy football. That's my gimmick. But by, by the way, UFC 202 this weekend. I tell you, I saw that Bad Blood um, feature the UFC put out. Pretty good uh, little feature. It's already up on, on the UFC YouTube channel. Uh, you definitely want to uh, check that out, previewing the fight coming up this weekend. It's, and, it's uh, hard to believe, Jason, that it's this weekend, though. I, I don't feel the buzz for it. Not, I, I mean, there's a buzz for it, but not like the first time these two guys fought. I think a lot of it has to do with the, you know, the reason why there isn't as big of a buzz, at least in my opinion, is because, A, it, you know, it's a little bit of a quick turnaround right after some big pay-per-views that they've had this summer already. There really hasn't been that much time between UFC 200 and this one. And also, summer shows are tough. Doing yeah. an event in the dead middle of August, that's a tough sell because so many people are out doing things. So many people are on vacation. I just think for a fight of this magnitude that August is a bad month for it. Yeah, I mean, I think once we get into Thursday and Friday this week, recording this podcast here on a Monday afternoon, once, you know, really you start seeing the commercials on the ESPNs and as the Olympics starts to, to finish up, I think you're going to see a huge buzz. I, I, I was talking to a bar owner um, this afternoon and, and told me, he said, he goes, I'm already getting phone calls on Monday about could that could you know people reserve tables for Saturday and uh, said to me he goes yeah that's only happens for Conor McGregor fights it doesn't happen for anybody else so maybe uh, I'm wrong maybe I'm wrong but I I will say this the, from what I've read the ticket sales are not that strong either yeah yeah I mean you also got I mean the one thing you have to remember is you're going into a bigger venue than the MGM Grand going over T-Mobile so you have a lot more seats available there but you know, I think it, is it kind of be starting to become that point where you know the the Ireland fans aren't coming over to the United States to watch Conor McGregor fight, and you know, and I know this. I'm kind of surprised this narrative's not been out there about you know really when you look at the Conor McGregor business, how much is on the line? What happens if Conor loses on Saturday night? Is he Dana still? Dana White's been, already told us he's going back to 45, win or lose. But you know, from a business aspect, which that's what we talk about here on this podcast, is is he still does that luster go off Conor McGregor where he's not that? That guy that's going to sell a million pay-per-view units and maybe it starts to come down i think he lost some luster after the loss to nate diaz the first time if he loses a second time which i'm going to predict here then yeah of course it goes down even further will i you know will he be completely irrelevant absolutely not he'll still be a draw he'll probably still be the ufc's biggest draw he's just not going to be to the magnitude of a draw as he had been every time you lose when you're at that level that he's at it definitely takes you down a peg Here's a question. Outside Connor and um, Ronda, who's the next biggest draw in the UFC? Well, could be John Jones. He's coming back. Did you, didn't you see the news? <laughs> I, I saw that. Uh, I, I was up. I got up uh, up uh, early on, on Monday morning. And it's I official. Saw... He's got, John Jones says he's coming back sooner rather than later. So he, he's coming back. Yeah, it's 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 going to be really interesting to see how that. Yeah, him how and that... Lane Johnson. See how all that that plays out there. Uh, I will tell you, I'm looking forward to Rumble and to Shara, uh, you know, coming up on Saturday as well. But you know, Sam, when I was in Philadelphia, you got people a little stirred up. I did. You know, I did. people want. You know, I got stirred up. 
really stirred up. <laughs> but we are going to get into that a little bit uh, here in a couple minutes about exactly uh, you know who uh, who you're going to talk about. As you know, one thing I always tell people: it doesn't matter whether you're doing an MMA podcast or any type of podcast or reporting on a sport, uh, you're going to create enemies for yourself at some point. Someone's not going to like what you have to say, and, well, obviously someone's not going to like you, Sam. Even if they do like you at this point, probably after they hear this podcast, they're not going to like you too much. But uh, on early Monday morning, two uh, announcements came out by the UFC. First off, UFC 204 made official October 8th, Manchester, England. Michael Bisming versus Dan Henderson, a bunch of other matches were announced. But to me, Sam, the most interesting part about this is, as we always say, we like to talk about the business side of of the sport here, is the fact that this is going to air live at the regular pay-per-view time. These The main card is going to kick off at 3 a.m. local time in Manchester, England, 10 p.m. here uh, in the East Coast where we both live. It's uh, very interesting to kind of see that the UFC, because I also, I, I really do believe I thought the UFC was putting some feelers out there about, well, what if we do a pay-per-view a little earlier in the night? And I think they didn't like what they were hearing. And they said, you know what? You know, it, it, I think it also shows of, you know, while they, you know, have this new TV deal in the UK and while they're still trying to build that market, ultimately the pay-per-view dollar is much more important. Great news if you're a fan that lives in the United States or, or Canada. Crappy news if you live in the UK and you're interested in going buying a ticket to see this fight. I, that's that's a really good question I have for people. Whether you're based in the U.S., United Kingdom, or anywhere in the world, would you pay to see a fight card that started at 3 a.m.? I don't know. Sam, I I wouldn't. I mean, I mean, I understand that that's the time that you know for a you know a pay per view. Normally, that that's the time they have to stay up till you know staying up till five six o'clock in the morning to watch, you know your your favorite fighter fight. But man, you, you talk about showing out that kind of money. Is that is is that what you want to do? I I guess it maybe it depends on how big of a Michael Bisping fan you are. If I was in my early to mid twenties, maybe I would do it. You know, just pull an all nighter and go for it. But once you're, you know, in your thirties or married, you got kids. How can you convince your significant other? Hey, I'm going out to see an MMA show at, that starts at three a.m. Yeah, that, that's tough. I mean, you know, you can call me old man Jason. Sometimes uh, staying up past ten, eleven o'clock at night can be pushing it for me. Got <laughs> <laughs> a big day of Bed Bath Beyond and uh, Home Depot. Oh, man. Next day, I, but I'm just I'm an early riser, Sam. I, so I mean, am I. So it, am I. it's one of those things of like even if I go to bed, you know, midnight, one a.m. If I end up working late, I'm still up five, six o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's just I'm just an early riser, and and, and for me, obviously, you know, owning my own business, it, it also allows me to get a lot of things done before, uh, you know, nine a.m. starts, and especially when I'm doing business with people out in the West Coast. It gives me a lot of time to get ahead of them before, uh, you know, giving them that, that phone call at noon when they get into the office. Yeah, you know, when you get up every morning, you know, 4, 5, 6 a.m., there's a tendency to start falling asleep a lot earlier than most people. I'm in the same category as you. I'm usually in bed at 10. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just, you know, it's just I'm just an early riser. But it's to me, it's just very interesting to see that the UFC is, you know, telling their UK audience, well, yeah, you're going to have to – you know, doing all nighter here uh, at the Manchester Arena, uh, Bisming and Henderson, and uh, I saw some comments from Dana White saying that this one is for the fans. 
Um, I think it's probably more for the fans to bring Michael Bisping over to England to defend the title, but I still find it hard to believe, Sam, and I'll get your thoughts on this. If Dan Henderson wins the title, I still find it hard to believe that he walks away. Absolutely. Considering, you know, I think for his last fight, he was making 800K. God bless him. You got to think he's going to make even more if he becomes champion. Oh, yeah. I mean, how could, could you could you walk away? No, you can't. You can't. You simply cannot walk away. I mean, because he might be in that million-plus range, especially if he's getting pay-per-view points. You cannot walk away from that money. No. Plus, no. If, if he beats Bisping, he's going to be convinced that he's still got it. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see what, what kind of happens there. My understanding is that Belfort Musasi is not the co-main event of the fight card. It would not surprise me if if they're not trying to put Joanna and Carolina on that fight card, maybe as a co-main event. I, I know Joanna wants to be uh, on that New York card, but uh, UFC may have a little bit different ideas in terms of that. Also, it was announced... What are they going to put on the New York card? Are they, gonna, you know, they should just cancel the New York card. Yeah, I mean, Ronda's not going to be ready. Connor may or may not be an option. If Connor McGregor gets knocked out or gets injured this weekend, it, you can forget about him at Madison Square Garden this is the first time around. They're saying Ronda's not going to be able to do it. Those are the latest reports. John Jones is kind of hinting at stuff, but it's John Jones, so you don't know. Yeah, but he I mean, hasn't specifically hinted at MSG. He's just hinting that he could be back sooner rather than later. I don't know if you can go with. John Jones is a as a headliner against Daniel Cormier at, at Madison Square Garden. It just uh you know what what can you do? I mean there's rumors that Chael Sonnen might be facing uh Nick Diaz on that show. There's been some rumors of about GSP also being on that show. But it doesn't seem like the UFC has anything concrete for Madison Square Garden. Yeah, no. I mean it's I mean Connor's got to be the number one choice. I mean even if you look at at John Jones, I mean and if you look at what Usada has done in the Tim Mean situation and the Yo Romero situation, you're talking you're probably looking at, at least 6 months from the day of that test. So we're talking that drug test was in what the middle of June uh, of when he when the the samples came back. So I mean even if you got 6 months, we're talking December January, so that would rule uh, New York out there, and uh, but yeah, there, there's not a lot of major options. Maybe you know, do you look at maybe? I mean, it just, I mean, Tyron Woodley, Stephen Thompson is not a sexy fight. I mean, you that know. fight may not happen if Tyron Woodley has his has his uh, his say. He wants that GSP fight. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we got a we got a question about that. Uh, basically, saying you know what happens if Woodley you know refuses that fight against Thompson. I mean, there's I, the problem with Woodley here, Sam, is he has no leverage. You know, and especially when you come out. I don't know about that. As the champion, I think he does. But when you start coming out making statements about, you know, not selling a fight and all that, that's an especially. But I agree with the statements. If you're not getting a cut of the pay-per-view, why should you put that work and effort to go way above and beyond to sell fights, to put all that extra time? Because when you really sell a fight, I'm not talking about doing a couple interviews here and there. I'm talking about doing all the media that's asked of you when you're in the spotlight like that. It's another job, and it takes away from your focus. It takes away from your training. You know, you train four to six hours a day. You come home, you're done. You want to rest, get ready for the next day. And now all of a sudden you got to hop on Skype or hop on the cell phone and do all these interviews with people when you when you'd rather be sleeping or preparing a meal for yourself. It's 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 a lot of work. And if you're not getting paid to do all that press, I can completely understand where Tywin Woodley's coming from and I support his stance there. But with new ownership, is that the route you want to be taking right now? 
well, new ownership needs Tyron Woodley and fighters of that caliber to, to fight for them and fight for them frequently. Yeah, Tyron, Tyron Woodley's made it. He's 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 paid his dues. He he's earned his keep. He's not a guy coming up. He's not a guy fighting on Fight Pass or Fox Sports Two or the Fox Sports One prelims where he has to accept what's being handed to him. He's worked hard to get to this level, to get this to this position. And I differ with you, man. I think he has leverage, and it's time for him to use that leverage. I mean, what's I, the I, point of being champion if you can't get the respect you feel like you deserve? No, I mean, look, you have to try to use your leverage. But when UFC 201 doesn't do well, I mean, you know, he needs, he, you know, and I understand where he's coming from. You know, he wants to get a GSP type fight, uh, a Nick Diaz type fight to try to elevate himself. But, you know, it, it's, you know, and, and Sam, I think you have to understand why people are calling him a hypocrite, you know, for I, I do understand. But. People also have to understand it's a business, and when, you, you, when you're not the champion and you want to fight for the title so you can make the most money, of course you're going to say whatever you think you need to say to try to put yourself in that spotlight. And once you have that title, it's a different story. Yeah, but, but then the other side of the story, as a champion, you shouldn't be picking your fights. You should be as, a champion, all- as a champion, you should try to make as much money as you can. And if he's getting points on the pay-per-view and, you know, if he didn't make a ton coming off of UFC 201 and, and, you know, people are questioning his ability to become a draw, then he's got to do things that'll help make himself more well-known and improve his Q score. And fighting Stephen Thompson's not going to improve his Q score the way a fight against Nick Diaz or George St. Pierre would. You know, we don't know how much longer Tyron Woodley wants to fight. He's still a young man, but he may not want to be in the fight game for very long. Mm -hmm. This could be a situation where he wants to make as much money while he can, and I don't think you can blame him for that. Oh no, I, I see. I see MMA fighters having the same type of career trajectory trajectory as an NFL player. You, your your lifespan could potentially be short. You know, mm-hmm. in the NFL, you have to worry about the threat of you know career-ending injuries. And yes, there's injuries in MMA, but the bigger threat is your athleticism leaving your body, you losing fights and being cut from a major organization and not being able to get back there. So Rob, you know, Tyrod Woodley has been fighting for a while now. He's fought to get to this spot. This is the spot that he's wanted. He's wanted to get to this plateau, and it's time for him to cash in now. So if I was Tyron Woodley, I wouldn't necessarily want to fight Stephen Thompson right away. I would try to get those fights with GSP and get those fights with Nick Diaz because he could potentially make 500000 to a $1 million more just based on pay-per-view points. I don't know how big of a fight Tyron Woodley versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I don't know how much that's going to draw. That may not even be a pay-per-view fight. You know, it could be a co-main event a fight on a pay-per-view, or it could be a Fox Sports, you know, headliner. And if he fights on Fox Sports against uh, Stephen Thompson, uh, you know, big main event, he'll get a lot of exposure. But it's not on pay-per-view. He's not going to get the points. If he gets that fight with Nick Diaz or GSP, that's a guaranteed fight on pay-per-view. He knows where that fight's going to be. I did find it interesting that George uh, went into the USADA testing program. You know, Dana White can say what he wants, that he doesn't think George is going to come back. But I I think that George is planning on coming back. I think the only issue right now is money. I think that that money is separating the two sides there. And Dana went out and said, oh, I don't think he really wants to fight. I I think he does. But I think he has a certain price point in mind. And I don't think the UFC has met that price point as of yet. Yeah, I mean, mean, for Woodley, I mean, there's got to come a point of how long do you sit on the sidelines waiting for that fight? And, you know, and then all of a sudden... If he does refuse, you know, if they do offer the Stephen Thompson fight, which Dana White has already come out publicly, said on UFC.com that that is 
That is the plan to do Woodley and Thompson. There, there can be uh, contract, uh, you know, issues if he does turn down that fight. Well, Tyron Woodley, the only thing that I think, the only area where I think he made a mistake, and this is unsolicited career advice, is that he went public. He, you know, once Dana kind of announced that 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 was what's next for him, Tyron went to Twitter and kind of contradicted Dana. And when you do that to a major fight promoter, especially someone of the ilk of Dana White. All that you've done is you've backed him into a corner. And from a public credibility standpoint, you know, he's Dana White in order to maintain his reputation. Now, you know, he's got to make that fight happen. Whereas I think Tyron should have kept everything private, should have went through his manager or even called Dana and said, hey, look, I'm going to fight Stephen Thompson. Absolutely. But Dana, I really want to fight GSP. I really want to fight Nick Diaz. I think if I fight one of those guys and beat them, the fight against Stephen Thompson is going to be much bigger you know, let's try to do something here. What can we do? He should have tried to use a more diplomatic tactic rather than go public like that because now Dana Dana can't back down publicly. He can't. You know, he's Dana White. And in order to save face, now Dana White has to make that fight against Stephen Thompson. That has to be the next fight. Tyron Woodley should not have backed Dana White into a corner publicly. And we saw what happened when, you know, Conor McGregor tried to back Dana White into a corner. You know, and, and, and how Dana reacted to that, you know, didn't allow him to fight in UFC 200. And, you know, we, we've talked about on this podcast, talked about already, we talked about in previous episodes, is you just, with UFC 205, I mean, there's just there's just not a lot of options. It's it's crazy. By the way, they also on, on Monday announced Ricardo Lamas, BJ Penn's going to headline the card in the Philippines in, in October. Sam, I don't understand this. I don't understand that because you would think BJ Penn's return is a big deal, and I'm sure it's a big deal in the Philippines, but he is such a well-known fighter here in North America. You would think that they would save his return, try to make it special, and you know, put it on Fox Sports, put it on But it gets a top five guy, though? I mean, why are you putting him in there against a the top five? He's making big time money. Probably, he's probably not giving them a hometown discount. He's probably coming in and probably not only making what he was scheduled to have made on his last fight, but he's probably getting a bump. The Dennis Seaver Cole Miller fight, I thought was the right type of fight to make. I mean, let's, let's maybe BJ pissed them off. Maybe this Usada thing has pissed them off, and they've changed the type of matchup that they had envisioned for him. I mean, the thing with BJ is I remember that, that his last fight against Frankie Edgar. I mean, I remember great. sitting there going, just stop the fight. Stop yeah. the fight. I mean, Lamas is a, yeah, Lam, look, you're right. Lamas is a very tough fight. I don't think BJ is going to win. I think he would have done very well against Seaver. Probably would have done pretty well against Cole Miller. This is definitely a completely different level of opponent. And I'm wondering why. The change. Why the change in matchmaking philosophy for BJ Penn's return? I, the only thing that I can think of, Jason, and I just already alluded to it, he must have pissed somebody off. Yeah, I mean, it's it'll be interesting. By the way, another thing, note before we get into who uh, who pissed you off, uh, CM Punk, <laughs> uh, the uh, the uh, special they're doing on FS1 premieres tonight, August 15th. Are, are you Looks, interested in watching that? I saw the preview for it, and I got to tell you, Jason, it looked pretty damn good. It looked like a movie documentary. Yeah, I'm. I'm tell you what, I'm. I'm going to be DVRing it. I'm interested to kind of see, uh, you know, what it's all about. It's going to be, you know, because when you look at that UFC 203 card in terms of pay per view buys, CM Punk is going to be the guy that could elevate that pay per view uh, to another level. I mean, let's just you know, 
you know, no, no, uh, you know, not to to talk down about Stipe Miocic or or Oscar Overeem, but they're not a needle mover when it comes to pay per view buys. It's just a another UFC pay per view. But CM Punk has that ability to you know bring that casual sports fan to say, you know what, I want to see what this guy can do. And the interest level, I feel, due to all the delays, kind of has fallen off a little bit. However, this type of show that they're doing with him could reinvigorate a lot of that interest. Boy, what this, if he the, wins? I don't think that? it's going to happen. What no, if he I don't wins? think he has a shot in hell to, to uh, beat Mickey Gall. And based on some of the brief, and I, I can't stress that enough, it was very brief, but based on some of that brief footage I saw of him fighting in the trailer for the reality show, he did not look good. Yeah. It's... He didn't look good at all. And Mickey Gall is a guy that, yes, it's too soon for him to be in the UFC. But from the people that I've talked to and from what I've seen of him, this is a guy, if, you know, you know, if he got to seven or, you know, seven, seven and oh, eight and oh on a regional circuit, definitely would have been like Mickey Gall's basically the type of guy that was, it was, it's inevitable that he was going to get into the UFC at some point. It happened sooner than anyone thought. And it's very early in his career, but he definitely has UFC level potential from the people that I've spoken with. He's training with all the right people. He's been training for this fight for a long time. He is going to be more than prepared. And when you talk to people behind the scenes about CM Punk and how he's looked at Rufus sport behind the scenes, you know, you, you, you get a lot of people that, Give him credit for his work ethic. They say he's come a long way in a short amount of time. But MMA is just such a difficult game to master because there's so many different facets that you have to learn and have to master that he's still nowhere near the caliber of a UFC-level fighter. And I think Mickey Gall taps him out in about two minutes. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people who've been around Mickey Gall, and they have nothing but great things to say. And, you know, really, the hard part's got to be for Joe Silva going forward. What do you do with Mickey Gall, a 2-0 and guy? I mean, you got to be looking at, okay, who is the, the low end to fight him in, in the UFC? It's just... You know, sometimes, and you've seen this a lot, where I see guys on the regional scene that I think are just absolutely being rushed. And, and I look at that stuff and I go, you know, obviously in Mickey Gall's case, it's a, a totally different situation. But, you know, when you look at some of these regional shows and, and you see, you know, some of these guys you only have a couple of fights and, and they're just being rushed up, like it's a rush to get them to the UFC, I kind of look at the management and go, I, I just don't understand that philosophy. That's why the UFC would need a minor league. Mickey Gall is the perfect example of that because after he beats CM Punk, you know, if I'm seeing, if I'm Mickey Gall's manager or trainer, I'm like, hey, can we go and do some events on Fight Pass? Can we go headline a Titan show? Can we go headline a Victory show? And where we can go and handpick our opponents, we'll fight there for three or four fights and then come back to the UFC. Can we just keep our contract where it's at, freeze it, and can we get your blessing, your permission to go fight? For fight pass, would you do that if you're Joe Silva? I would. I bet it. I, you know, I'm, if I was in Joe Silva's, you know, position or Sean Shelby's, that 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 would be a dream come true. That would make their lives so much easier. But I don't know if that's even an option to them. Yeah, it's uh, it'd be interesting to kind of see what what plays out there with CM Punk. But as we as it was, uh, I think it was Thursday of last week because I believe I was sitting up in the press box and all of a sudden I start getting all these notifications on my phone. And I'm like, and I think I literally sent you a message to go, um, so uh, what's going on? Uh, you know, obviously you saw something that uh, piqued your interest. 
Well, we now have a new fighters association in MMA. It's the Professional Fighters Association, and it's backed by some heavy, heavy hitters. I mean, this is the real deal. I think this is the best opportunity that we've seen in quite some time for a real fighters association to exist in MMA. You know, it's led by Jeff Boris, who is, you know, represented athletes for a long time now, he's represented Barry Bonds and Jose Canseco, and the agency that he works for is also in charge of the Diaz brothers. They manage both the Diaz brothers. The, I believe it's the Bollinger Group. I don't know how you pronounce that, but that's how you know I, I remember it. Also, you've got Lucas Middlebrook, who also represented Nick Diaz in, in the case against the Nevada State Athletic Commission. You know, in, in trying to get his suspension reduced, and we can say that Lucas Middlebrook was. Absolutely successful in that. Nick Diaz just recently got reinstated in his back and was looking at a very lengthy suspension until Lucas Middlebrook came in and, and worked his magic. So you've got some heavy hitters here, and you've got a real shot at fighter representation and collective bargaining. And, I, and I'm excited for it. It doesn't seem like someone else is very excited for it, Jason. And that certain someone is a gentleman by the name of Rob Macy who happens to be the figurehead of another fighter association, one that's been around much, much longer than the PFA. That would be the M-A-A-F-A, MAFA, or whatever you want to say. It's a very acronymy. They need to shorten it up. Yes, it's very acronymy. I, I, I know that's not a word, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, just an awkward, uh, it's an awkward one. Yeah, it's I mean, an aw- like, look, this is a thing, and I've seen everyone associated from, from Rob and the fires associated with MMAFA and what they've said. Like, you know, look, first off, I've been told there's tons of, of you know, associations that are being trying to build out there, um, you know, and, and obviously, you know, the MMAFA is trying to help all organizations. But, you know, Sam, first off, in terms of fighter, you know, uh, associations here, Tell me what a fighter fighting, let's just use where you're, you're at, in Philadelphia. What is a local fighter in the Philadelphia area, what is his benefit to being a part of a fighter association? There is none. There, there is absolutely none because now he's got to pay some kind of type of dues, and he's already not making a ton of money to begin with, and he's got trainer's fees, and he's got, he's got to pay for supplements, he's got to pay for this and that. And... You know, I don't know if any of these associations, though, are setting out to represent those guys. If you look at the press release for the PFA, they're focused just on fighters in the UFC and doing a collective bargaining agreement with the UFC. There's no mention of Bellator. There's no mention of other regional organizations. And from what I gather from everything that I've read over the years from the MMA FA, MAFA, whatever it is, uh, you know, I don't think that they've ever really, you know, expressed an interest in representing Bellator fighters or fighters at the lower levels of MMA. So everyone wants to represent and do collective bargaining for the UFC fighters with the UFC. I just, you know, I'm happy to see Jeff Boris and Lucas Middlebrook to get involved. You would have to think, though, the UFC is not very happy about it. They're not too excited about it. UFC can't come out publicly and say anything negative. You, you would think that they were hoping someone would come out and say something negative and, and try to put the organization down. And look who did their work for them. Unbeknownst to, 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 to the UFC and maybe even Rob Macy himself, he did the UFC's dirty work, came out, 
and blasted this PFA, you know, questioned their credibility, questioned the fact that Jeff Boris was also an agent, said there's a conflict of interest. And if they don't do this and this, then his organization, you know, and everyone else should question their motives. It's just, you know, that press release or it's not a press release. It was an article that's on Forbes.com written by Matt Connolly, a couple statements from, from Rob Macy. But it was such a ridiculous stance for Rob Macy to take. Because you're doing the UFC's dirty work for them. They want to discredit, you know, if you believe that the UFC does not want fighters associations or a union, they don't want collective bargaining, then you would believe you would have to think that they would want to discredit any organization that rises up. And here's Rob Macy trying to discredit this organization, a guy who claims and it's purported to be someone that has the best interest of the fighters in mind an advocate for fighters goes out. And bashes this organization. I have a real issue with Rob Macy and the way he's conducted himself in the past. If you're a regular listener of this show, you know that. You know, I had a real issue when he cried at the press conference announcing the antitrust lawsuit. The fighters, if there is an issue with the UFC, the fighters are the ones that are the victims. They're the ones that are the aggrieved parties. If anyone should be crying, it should be the fighters that in that believe from their perspective that they've lost out on tens, hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of dollars. They're the ones that are the, that are the victims. They should be the ones that are upset and showing emotion at a press conference, not their attorney, the one that's going to have to go to bat for them and be an advocate and a, a, a defender for them in the court of law. They need their attorney to be strong and defend them, not to break down with emotion in a public forum. So to me, when someone does that, you know, in the case of Rob Macy, he's making it about him. That was his Super Bowl. He won his Super Bowl. He wanted to sue the UFC for a long time. And that lawsuit finally happened and he broke down crying at the press conference. You know, is it about him? Or is it about the fighters? In my opinion, based on some of these statements here and some of the actions of Rob Macy, I don't know. In my opinion, because I'm talking about a lawyer here, so I'm going to say in my opinion a lot. In my opinion, I am not so sure whether or not he has the fighter's best interest in mind or his own. Because it's pretty cool, I guess, if you like fighters and you look up the fighters and you like, you know, jocks and athletes, it must be pretty cool to be in charge of an association or being, you know, potentially in charge of an association that would represent all those fighters. Because now, essentially, you're a manager because you're doing collective bargaining. You're the chief negotiator and you're telling the guys whether or not they should fight or go into the cage and fight. You know, that's a lot of power to have, and potentially it's something that uh, a position like that could reap a lot of financial benefits. And Rob Macy has come out and said, well, I'm just trying to start this. I'm not necessarily going to be the head of it. It will be the, uh, the, the, be up to the fighters to elect me to that position. But, you know, this organization, the MMAFA, Jason, it's been around since I owned five ounces of pain. I remember covering some of their moves early on and their formation when I was operating five ounces of pain. And that was a long time ago, Jason. That was a very long time. Yeah, I mean, this organization, the MMA, MMA, FA, MAFA, Rob Basie's MAFA has been around for a long time and really has not done much. They only have one significant endorsement from a uh, from a uh, labor union. Um, they only really have two fighters that have ever come out and supported them publicly, Leslie Smith and Cajun Johnson, and they really haven't done anything for fighters. Jeff, uh, you know, Lucas Middlebrook 
has done a lot for Nick Diaz. What has Rob Macy necessarily done for fighters as far as delivering? He's had the intent, and he started a lot of these initiatives, but what has he delivered on, Jason? You know, you go to the, the MAFA website, and you read about MAFA, and it talks about their involvement in Elite XC and Strike Force and Showtime and getting the fighters that were stuck in that Elite XC contract when uh, – Elite XC shuttled, uh, they stopped operations and they were in the process of doing a sale. A lot of those fighters were in pur- purgatory. All of them were in pur- a state of purgatory. And you look at the Moffat website and Jeff, uh, Rob Macy, who I assume wrote, wrote it, is basically taking credit. But taking credit for what? From what I followed that situation very closely. I worked for Pro Elite and I worked for Showtime. I had a lot of inside information. And Rob Macy did not do anything that he purports or tries to promote in that article on his website. It's, it, he, did not, he did not get a single fighter released from that contract. The fighters started fighting again because their contracts were transferred and sold to strike force but if you go to to mafa that website rob macy i think it's in my opinion it's a little bit of false advertising and it's not entirely honest because he's trying to take credit for something yes you sent out a press release on letterhead you 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 did some interviews and, and you called some fighters but you didn't actually get any real course of action done you didn't really actually do anything for the fighters you didn't get them released the, the fighters got sold their contracts got sold to strike force you know it was the managers i remember ken pavia monty cox and several other managers they all got together and started working together and putting pressure on press uh, on on, on uh, elite xc and they started doing interviews that from what i was told had more impact and Pro Elite and Elite XC felt more pressure from that than anything that Rob Macy did. Yet, if you go to the MAFA website, Rob Macy is essentially taking credit. Taking credit for what, though? What has this guy done in over, you know, close to eight years here? Now you've got some real heavy hitters. You've got Jeff Boris. He's represented some of the best athletes in the world. You've got a guy here in Lucas Middlebrook who has done wonders for the career, career of, Nate, uh, of Nick Diaz. They've actually done stuff for athletes, and they come up with this organization that's not endorsed by some trade union, but endorsed by the Players Association for Major League Baseball, the NFL, and other major sports leagues. And, and these are quotes that they have in their press release from the heads of these organizations. So they're, they're backed by a real, you know, they've got some legs to them. They've got a lot of juice there. And you would think someone like Rob Macy, someone in that position that really says they care about the fighters, you think that they would at the very least be intrigued by this organization and be excited by it. And if they did have concerns, instead of going public and trying to discredit and doing the UFC's work for them, would go behind the scenes. And if they had real concerns on the behalf of the fighters, would try to work it out that way. But it's it's to me what the, the statements that he gave to Matt Connolly on the Forbes site were very self-serving, very self-promotional and counterintuitive to what the fighters really need. This could be a big thing for fighters and coming out against it. If you truly are for the fighters, what purpose does that serve? You know, when all this news came out and Rob had his comments, you know, one of the thoughts that came to my mind was it was it kind of came off like, how dare someone else try to create another fire association? You know, and, you know, look, at the end of the day, whatever is best for the fighters, I am all for. I don't care what the the name behind, you know, a potential fire association. I just want things that are better. But, you know, one of the things I keep I keep harping on is everything is about pay. 
why don't we hear anything about the medical side of this? And that, to me, is one of the things that that, that baffles me. I mean, the inside MMA piece this That's past a great weekend. Point, Jason. Oh, I'll get to that in a second. I'll let you finish. I'm sorry. The one thing about the inside MMA piece that was put out this past Friday is it was one-sided. It only told one side of the story. It didn't, you know, and to me, I, I, this is my sense of the MMA FA is everything they want to do is tied to the Ali at getting through in, in, in Congress. And I've, we've sat here on the show. I don't know how many times we've said it. I don't think that that bill's got a chance of passing. And I've spoken to other people that have confirmed what, what you're saying. And it's just it bothers me that we're hearing so much talk about fighter pay because you can get a percentage, you can get a commission on fighter pay. But, I, Jason, I guess at the end of the day, you can't collect a commission on improved medical care for fighters. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's I guess improved medical care for fighters. That's not going to pay union dues or association dues. Well, here's the other thing, Sam. How many insurance companies out there? are ready to insure a fighter who's been fighting for a decade. Because you got you all know, these pre-existing but conditions. But if you're a fighter's association or union, you have to provide benefit to your constituents. You have to provide benefit. You have to get affordable medical care for your athletes. You have to get some kind of pension program going. And you have to give, you know, legal, legal resources. You have to provide, you know, you have to be ready to provide those resources. If a fighter gets into some kind of conundrum or some kind of grievance, yeah, you have to be able to to supply that, to be a real association, to offer real value. You've got to be able to provide that level of support for your athletes. And, you know, no one, I'm not hearing enough talk about that. It's all about, well, we want the the, the organizations to have to disclose how much they're making. You know, the UFC sold for $4 billion. These guys aren't making enough money. You, I mean, do you want the fighters to make more money so that they can pay you more so that they can pay association dues and pay commissions or do you want to really make this a better environment all around a truly well-rounded experience for the fighters but all i'm hearing is money 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 and granted that's very important but there's other needs that fighters have whether or not the fighters themselves want to acknowledge those needs as high enough priorities the reality is though that as athletes as professional athletes those needs are very important and if you're going to look out for the fighters best interest even if they're not concerned about it, you need to educate them and look out for them on their behalf. And we talked about a little earlier in this podcast. How do you help out the local fighter? What is a fighter's association going to do for a guy who is fighting on that local scene? And Sam, you know this very well, that if they're not a, a major ticket seller, it's tough for them to get a you know a, a decent you know I mean, they can't be a full time fighter unless they're you know they're a major ticket seller because that's the thing you can't collect dues from those guys those guys aren't going to pay dues but what you should do is try to bring them in and don't collect dues from them try to have some kind of mechanism in place that says any fighter making less than this we will not collect dues you don't have to start paying dues until this point but you can be part of the association that's you look at the nfl player association they've sold out a lot of their 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 athletes as well because they don't know how to make money off retired athletes once the paychecks coming uh, stop coming i think just now just recently from what i've been told you know the 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 nfl players they only have health coverage for 5 years after they retire is that you might know better than i do but you would think with all the money that's out there that the nfl players association would try to have you know 
longer term healthcare for athletes once they've once they've retired. But you know that's not something that they've really looked into until recently, and so they've been kind of called out publicly because they don't know how to get dues and make money off of retired athletes. And I guess you know all these other wannabe players associations in, in MMA and wannabe unions, they just don't know how to make money off of anyone that's not in the UFC. You know, two things. But it shouldn't. But it shouldn't be about money. It should be about looking out for the athletes. But I think it's. I think there's people in this that are involved with some of these associations, Jason, that have ulterior motives. Here's you know the financial part of it. One thing we we've not even come remotely close to hearing is how much would it cost a fighter to be a part of the association? How much are they going to to fork out per year to be a part? Uh, of this association, you know, and they're already because that's the, they're already being dollared to death. But in, here, here's the other part: How, who is financially keeping this association going? Is, is this just you know, hey, it's we're going for quite some time? That's a good question, Jason. You know, I mean, is it just simply of hey, you know what? There's you know whether it's Rob Macy or you know Kung Lee or Randy Couture or, or Nate Quarry that are like you know what we're, we're putting a little bit of our money in here to keep this thing going. I mean, I just. You know, I, I don't get the sense that if the, the Ali Act for MMA does not pass, which I firmly expect that it, it's not going to pass, and, and let's be honest, Sam, we're in election year. So, you know, for even all the co-sponsors that are a part of this bill, um, you know, I, I know that uh, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen is up for re-election. It, you know, if Mark Wayne Mullen is not re-elected, of course, somebody else could, could take a part of this. But the other thing I, I keep seeing is, all the fighters that are are publicly for this, which let's they're all fighters for the most part outside of Cajun Johnson, Leslie Smith, either they're retired fighters or, or they're fighters who are no longer uh, in the UFC. It, it almost I get the sense like they're they're craving for some type of media attention, and outside of social media, I just don't think they're getting it. You made another good point here, Jason. You talked about the money. Who's paying for this? And from what I was told by multiple sources that when Rob Macy and and Nate Quarry met with Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, that Congressman Representative Mullen was lobbied. It's not cheap to lobby Mm -hmm. a United States, uh, you know, House of Representative member. Who paid for that? Who put that money up? Where did that money come from? Was that Rob Macy's personal money? And if that's money that was put up by someone else, that you know, there's people backing this organization, what's the better investment? Trying to fit a square peg into a round hole with this mark, with this uh, Ali Act that was written for boxing, try to plug it in for uh, MMA, when really all it really does, it does more to hurt the UFC than it actually does to help the fighters? Or would it have been a better investment to write a bill from scratch? That's not called the Muhammad Ali Act for MMA, but call it the Randy Couture Act for MMA. And write it from the ground up, specifically tailored to the needs of MMA fighters, and then take that to Representative Mullen and try to get that passed. Because maybe that has a shot to get passed. But now you've created a bill or you're backing a bill that really the UFC perceives as just a, a, a bill to weaken their power base. And they're going to spend all kinds of money. And use all their resources to stop this from happening. You know, I was told at one point that it it was going to happen before the bill was even proposed, that this was going to happen. It was a done deal. And then the UFC got sold and Ariel Manuel came in. And then, Jason, I heard exactly what you said from other people that this bill 
has no shot to get past. And it had not, they didn't attribute it to Ario Manuel, but I didn't, I, there wasn't that 180 change from yes, it's going to happen to now it's not going to happen until Ario Manuel was involved. And, you know, that's because they've adopted a bill. They're backing a bill that, like I said, and I hate to repeat myself, I do it a lot on this show, but I feel it does more to hurt the UFC than it does to help fighters. Here, here's uh, and, and the, the barometer I always use in terms of is a MMA story big is if I'm sitting in an NFL press box and people come up to me and ask me. That's how I know whether a story is big. I have never been in a press box and someone brings up the MMA FA. But Sam, what do you think came up last Thursday? The PFA? Yes. Well, yeah, and let's let's go over why people are talking about the PFA. Donald Fear, Tony Clark, Demuri Smith, and and uh, I believe Bob Fosse, who does the soccer union, they've all come out publicly and supported this. I mean, this is a real thing. This is a, this is a, these are some heavy hitters, and you know, for Rob Macy to try to question the integrity. Or the credibility of this group is ridiculous. And I think what's even more ridiculous, in my opinion, is a quote that he has here where he's talking about they haven't reached out to us. Uh, that's not happening. How yet. dare We're, they not reach out to you? Yeah, but, but we anticipate that's going to happen. Dude, these guys are heavy hitters, big time agents, and they've gotten massive endorsements. I don't think they're waiting to call you. No. I don't think they're even waiting to hear from you. But if you're waiting to hear from Jeff, uh, Jeff Boris or Lucas Middlebrook, do not hold your breath, Rob Macy. Do well, not hold your breath because you may suffocate. And, you know, you, what you should do is probably try to reach out to them. Although after you've made these statements and they're all out on the web on Forbes.com, I've got a feeling they may not want to take your call. Yeah, may I mean, not want to take your call. I, I think the thing that I kind of, you know, in, in terms of what's going, if I am a current UFC fighter, it's. I would be sitting there going, okay, we know what the MMAFA, what they're trying to do. I would be going over the PFA and trying to figure out what they want to do because at the end of the day, I'm I'm pro fighter. I want whatever's best for yeah. the fighters. If the MMAFA can offer the best, you know, options for a fighter, hey, great. Let's. They should be the, the organization. But if the PFA is better for the fighters, that who that is who the fighters should go with. Another point I want to touch on here, where I think there's some hypocrisy. In some of Rob Macy's comments, you know, questioning the fact that Jeff Boris is also an agent and also part of this organization, saying there's a conflict of interest. Well, Rob Macy has said he's not necessarily going to be the head of his fighters association, that he would be have to be elected. He's just being one of the pioneers that's building this for the fighters. Well, Jeff Boris has not said he's going to be the head of this organization. He's involved. He's heavily involved. His name's attached to it, but he hasn't been elected. So, you know, you look at that, you know. But he's complaining about a conflict of interest. But I think Rob Macy may have a conflict of interest. In my opinion, he might have a conflict of interest because he's the guy that's behind MAFA. He's the guy that's involved with the Ali Act and lobbying Representative Mullen. And he's also one of the attorneys that's involved in this lawsuit. And, you know, he's got his hands in a lot of different pots. And I think there could be a conflict of interest there. Let's just say I'm Cajun Johnson, and I read this press release from the PFA, and I see Jeff Boris's name, I see Lucas Middlebrook's name, and you know what? I want to be involved with the PFA. I think this has a real shot. Or let's just say I'm not Cajun Johnson. Let's say I'm just some random fighter that's not even affiliated with, with uh, MAFA, that has not gotten attached to it. But I, I didn't buy into what Rob Macy was telling me, but I like this new organization. I want to get involved, but I could potentially be adjoined to that 
antitrust lawsuit as part of the class. You know, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, I've been a part of class action lawsuits where I didn't even opt in. I just was automatically opting in. And, you know, you read about a settlement for, you know, tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, eight months later, you get a check for five bucks. So if I'm that fighter who gets a, gets opted in or decides to opt in to that antitrust, but I've gone the PFA route, you know, how do I know I'm going to get my five dollar check after the lawyers take their cut? How do I know as a fighter? If, the, if, if by some chance, if by some miracle, the, there was a ruling against the UFC in regards to that antitrust lawsuit, now that if I've aligned myself to the PFA, how can I be confident that I'm going to get my $5 check from the lawyers that Rob Macy's a part of? Yeah, uh, uh, there's so many questions out there in terms of, of what's going to happen next. And, you know, also, and we talk, I believe we talked about this on the last episode of the podcast where – you know, when, when fighter pay comes up, it's ultimately, it's immediately like, oh, the UFC doesn't pay their guys. But I, I think the, the part of the story that, you know, we don't kind of talk about is the fact of, you know, the the low pay that is out there on the re- regional scene of how it is a struggle for, for these guys. And the other side is you don't know if they've had some financial hardships or maybe they had a bad business not go their way, uh, you know, and, and whatnot. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I it's it's this bullseye that's on the UFC, but I mean, it's, it's a bullseye on, t- on the whole organization, whole sport of them may have just how bad pay is out there. I mean, look, I want what's best for fighters. And if the PFA is what's best for fighters, then that should be who the, the fighters association should be. In order for the fighters to make money, the promoters have to make money. And that's the problem at the regional level. You've got a lot of promoters that aren't making enough to send that and kick that back to the fighters. I mean, who's making a ton of money on the regional scene? Name me a promoter that's a guy that's making hand over fist that has so much money to put back into the fighters. And that kind of leads me over to the UFC. You know, it's sold for $4 billion. Yeah, it's sold for $4 billion, But it, they, they're not making $4 billion a year. You know, it, 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 the, the Fertitas and Dana White, they built an organization. They invested in it. They sold the organization. They're cashing out. You know, if you look at the earnings, you're looking at the in the 350 to 365 million range. I mean, who's not getting paid? The fighters are getting paid. I mean, Dan Henderson is making eight hundred thousand dollars. You look at some of these other guys, Mark Hunt. How much did he make for his last fight? He made a lot of money. Uh, I mean, seven hundred thousand. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, to, to me, the question is, how much should a professional fighter make? How much should a professional fighter make, Jason? Uh, yeah, it's it's. It's got to be based on how much revenue is coming in. I mean, you talked about the regional scene. I mean, let's be honest about it. You know, if you put all the regional promoters in a hat and you start pulling them out and you got to say, okay, they go in one one of the two hats. They're making money or they're losing money. Or losing no, money, there's, a, there's another hat. There's breaking even, which breaking I've done. Even. And but, if you're breaking even, you're losing money because you put in all that work and you, you can't pay your bills because you have no money. When I, the, the, the last event that I promoted was Matrix Fights. I mean, I, 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 you know, my, me and my partners, we put on a great event. Everyone loved it. All the fans, the fighters were happy with it. At the end of the day, I broke even. And I had a lot of people, when I told them that, they were like, you broke even. That's, that's, that's a victory. And I go, what do you mean? They go, this was a, a top-level show for the region. You paid your fighters well. Everyone was happy with it. You know, a lot of people thought I would have lost money on a show like that. But, you know, I broke even. But that wasn't really, 
you know, that, that moral victory didn't do much for, for my bank account and having to have to pay my mortgage and all my bills that month. And there's a lot of promoters that were in the same boat as I am. I'm not a unique tale that they, they put their heart and soul into the event and they do take care of the fighters. They pay them as much as they can without losing money. And there's still not enough money left over for them to really even go out and take their significant other to dinner. And yet fighters still want more. So the question is, how much should fighters make? And I think you hit the nail on the head. It all comes down to the revenue generated. And, you know, the UFC does not make $4 billion a year. They make somewhere between 350 to $365 million. Now, you could say the amount of income, the percentage of income that they kick back to their fighters is, is a lot lower than compared to other sports leagues. And you might be right. But, you know, there's still some guys in the UFC making a lot of money and the guys that aren't making a lot of money, they're, they're relatively new in a lot of cases. They're, they're guys that really no one has ever heard of, and you don't know if they're drawing a single dime in ticket sales, and you, you know for a fact they're not doing anything on, uh, on pay-per-view. You know, in order to make money in MMA, it's different than baseball. It's different than all the other sports. You don't make money in MMA unless you're generating money. This isn't a situation where it's like Major League Baseball, where you're the 25th man on the team who could be sent down to the minors or released at any moment, yet you're, you're, you're making $850,000 a year because that's what your association negotiated as the bottom line minimum for the contracts. Um, you know, but you know, you know, maybe you can raise that minimum for, for some of these guys. But the UFC could counter and just reduce the amount of uh, fighters they have on their roster and the amount of fighters they want to develop. But should Dan Henderson be making more than 800000 per fight? Should Mark Hunt have made more than 700000 for that Brock Lesnar fight? Again, the question comes back to how much should someone make for hitting another person in the face for a living? And, and yes, they're, they're putting a lot on the line for our entertainment, and they're making a lot of sacrifices. And I want them to make money. But how much? Hey, can I, they make? I want every fighter to get overpaid, but I also, in running a business, I understand that you got to make money. Yeah, you got to be realistic about this. Yeah, I mean, you got to sit there and say, okay, these are our revenues, but how much does it cost to to operate that business on a day in and day out basis? I mean, you, you think, I mean, you know, I, it's not cheap to run the UFC. It's not cheap to run Bellator or any of these promotions. I mean, there, there's a lot of a cost that goes involved in. It. I mean, I want to see fighters make the most money they can but you know it's you know for every dan henderson that's out there you know there's there's guys that you know aren't that draw that you know are you know at the bottom end of a of a ufc paper uh, ufc card that what are they what are they worth you know what is their worth in terms of the revenue they're bringing into the promotion the biggest issue I have when it comes to fighter pay are the ancillary rights, the likeness rights. That's where I think there needs to be major negotiations done on a collective level. I don't think a fighter, their likeness should be featured in a UFC video game that generates tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and not see a single dime from that. I think that's criminally wrong. I think that's insane. I think some of this Reebok stuff is total garbage as far as their uniforms uh, being put out there with their with their names on it. And they're getting just a pittance of that. It, to me, you know, if Reebok doesn't do a good job in the design and the marketing, that's on them. I think the fighters should get a flat rate if their likeness is going to be used. And I think it should be a significant one. And it should be on the vendor who puts the money up. It should be up to them to deliver on their end from a creative level and a marketing level to make that money back instead of a, a, a small percentage of, of nothing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the these thing, sales are generating nothing. Like the thing about the sponsorship, you know, part of it is, and, and I try to talk about this all the time, is, 
you, know, you have to understand that the reason those sponsors were paying fighters, the amount of money they were paying fighters, is because they were in the UFC octagon. Yeah. If you're in the Bellator cage, it's a different story. I mean, we played the clip from Benson Henderson, what he said last week, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of that reality of knowing what that market is. And, and I, I really wish more fighters would kind of understand that the reason those sponsors were in your business was because you were fighting in the UFC octagon, not because they're in the business of John Smith. And, that, and that's but, a part. And that's but a part here's I the thing, though. You're talking about the video games. I'm talking about the video game stuff now. You're taking them out of the octagon. You're getting someone to pay. I mean, if, if the video if uh, if the video games paying, they're not paying for the octagon. Yes, they're paying a significant amount to get the UFC branding in their game. But they're also if that was just the case, and they would put a bunch of random people with, uh, you know, they wouldn't use actual likenesses of of, of the athletes. They're putting the actual fighters in these games and making money on it. Do people actually pay, go, go and pay and get the UFC video game? I don't know what the I, last I would, one generated I would, by I would the, be, when it first came out, tons of people bought it. I would be interested in EF, uh, EA UFC two actually make money after all their expenses. But, and but it's irrelevant, Jason, because they paid a set license fee to the oh, UFC. No, yeah. The UFC cashed in on their likeness. Oh, of course. Yeah. And no, some of these action figures that are out, like how much do the fighters make when, when, when they're put on an action figure, their likeness is used, and someone buys that figure? How much money do, do, do they see from that? Do they see any? Well, here, here's the other thing. The I, and, cards. And, and Jason, I, when, when, when baseball and, and, and uh, you know, I've talked to baseball players and football players, when, when the, the uh, card, card companies put out, uh, you know, the cards, they get a pre- at the, once a year, they get a pretty significant check. From this, the association it, it, the, along those lines, Sam. I, and I, I've always, and I remember I asked somebody about this, and I never got a, a direct answer. You know, the UF, the, you know, fighters come in on, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, and you, know, you see the video. They're they're sitting in there in the, in the in the room, and they're signing all these posters. And the UFC sells these posters. I've never got an answer whether the fighters actually get a cut of those posters for signing. I've been told they don't. I've been told they don't. I've also been told that they they have to turn in. One of their fight-worn, correct? Yes, uh, fight-worn um, pieces of, of uh, uniform, yeah, apparel, and that that gets sold, and that they don't see the money. Come on, Sam. Don't you, we all remember we had that conversation about who was wearing the uh, fight-worn uh, sports bras. I, we, we've had that conversation. We've talked about the gloves too, and I've talked to people. Apparently, there's not a big market as far as quantity of people that are interested, but as far as quality, there are some really eccentric millionaires, from what I've been told, that pay a lot for fighter gloves. And I spoke to one manager that talked about it. And there's a guy, I guess he's based in Asia, and he pays a lot for the fighter gloves. And and the fighters were selling pieces of their apparel to this guy and making pretty good money. And then the UFC started taking one item of apparel from the fighters. And this guy was able to buy it from the UFC or the, the third party UFC auction site much cheaper than what he was paying the fighters. And basically the UFC third party that sells the, 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 uh, the, the, the fight worn apparel basically are undercutting what the fighters were getting when they were dealing directly with this guy on the market. So the fighters were even hurt in that regard. Not only do they lose sponsorship dollars from, from Reebok, but in certain cases, they're, they're not able to sell their gloves for as much as they once were, from what I've been told. Yeah, I mean, like you, you go right now on UFCstore.com, they've got a Conor McGregor uh, signed glove for $130. Now, what's Conor get out of that? 
you know, why can't they? Put, why do you have to make money on that? Like, you know, how much money does the UFC truly make off of that? After they pay taxes on it, after the third party vendor that that uh, you know that arranges all of that, how much of that hundred thirty dollars does the does the UFC actually see? And is it worth the, to them to take that from the fighter? Just let them have all of their apparel. Just, I mean, why do you need yeah. them to turn anything in? Because, you know, you would say it's just one piece. The UFC has a right to ask for it. But, again, it's undercutting, in many cases, what the fighter is able to get on their own when they sell it. It's, it's you, you feel bad for the fighters. I mean, at the end of the day, you just feel bad for them. You know? I do. But I, you know what makes me feel even worse? I think there's people out there that claim and purport to have their best interest in mind when in reality they have their own self-interest in mind. And that kind of takes me to the, the next topic. We got a lot of feedback last week, Jason, when we talked about the ABC and some of the Civil War activities that are taking place within that organization. And it's the same thing. You've got a lot of people out there dumping their chest, saying they're all about fighter safety and making the sport better for the fighters, when in reality, I think it's about their ego, and I think it's about their own self-interest. They want power. They want their name in lights. They want everyone talking about them, when in reality, it, it, they need to be about what they're actually promoting themselves as, as fighter advocates, as having fighter safety as their number one priority. And I think, you know, it, it, it got a lot of reaction behind the scenes from what I said about Mike Mazzoli. And based on what I've been told, I really think – that some of these issues that people have now with the ABC, it's, I think it comes down to them having a personal issue with Mike Mazzulli. I think Mike Mazzulli totally is political. I think, I, but I think it's not just political. I think it's personal. I think it's their own personal ego. You know, Jason, I used to coach Little League Baseball and, and basketball for, for my brother when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I, I was pretty good when I was younger, and I got asked by a couple coaches to come in and help out. And I did that. And I, I stopped doing it after a couple of years because I got to see these grown adults just degenerate into this level where they were living vicariously through these kids. And they were just trying to, you know, make themselves feel better about themselves through these kids and, you know, doing all these underhanded things to try to get certain kids in a, in a draft or try to, you know, rewrite the rules to, to benefit their team so they could feel like that they were the top manager out there or they were the best guy out there. And some of the stuff that goes on the ABC, it reminds me of that. It's like kids who, you know, parents who, you know, go to these little league games and get more intense about winning and losing than, than the kids do because they make it about them. And I, I see that. I, I see a lot of ego involved with this. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that, you know, Mike Mazzulli, a lot of people, for some time, didn't want him to take over the ABC. You know, they, they, I think they had personal issues with them, but the reality is they wanted to be at the top of the food chain. They wanted to be the president of the UFC. And Mike Mazzulli ran multiple times and, and just couldn't beat out Tim Lukanoff. Finally, he did. And it's a democratic process when it comes to the, the head of the ABC. Mike Mazzulli won. He won in a democratic, fair process. You're part of the ABC. Support him. Don't be a child and run off and start a rogue organization. For better or for worse, your body that you are part of elected Mike Mazzulli. You're part of that organization. You need to stand by Mike. Maybe you don't like Mike personally. I don't. You know, I I, I think Mike's a great guy. You know, but I, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. They have different experiences with people. But at the end of the day, Mike has the best interest of the fighters in mind, and he's made the ABC more relevant than it's ever have been, has been in quite some time. There was more press coverage this past, 
uh, you know, for the, this past conference, uh, for this past conference that I've seen in the last five years combined. And that's because Mike is trying to take the ABC in, an, in a direction that makes it more relevant and is actually trying to do something for the fighters and take take uh, take you know regulation forward and and uh, you know some of these guys you know bernie and, and lukanoff you know by breaking off which i you know i like them personally i've met them they've always been good to me but i just have an issue with this i you know i like nick lambo personally he's always been good to me and he's always helped me out i just wish nick would would you know maybe keep some of these comments that he has to himself you know and not put them out publicly and try to discredit what the ABC is doing and its power base and its relevance and if he has issues and has concerns that's great but deal with them in a closed door fashion rather than going out and issuing these statements you know he knows mike that you know they've been you know i don't know if they're they're friends friends but they've been around each other for a long time they have each other's numbers he can just pick up a phone and call Mike anytime he wants same thing with luke and off same thing with bernie but they break off cuz you know tim you know I don't know if he ran, even ran this time, but, you know, I think he backed Bernie. Bernie didn't get it. You know, Mike had more votes. Mike got it. Don't go off and do this rogue organization because it doesn't do anything for the fighter. And, you know, the ideas that this new organization has, this rogue organization, I don't think they're that fighter forward. I don't think they're anything new. I don't think it's taking the sport in a new direction. I mean, doing same-day weigh-ins, that's not, that's not, like, that's not, that's not fire no. safety. That's not safe. That's not you know visionary. That's that's like that's that's what a lot of these commissions did when they first you know adopted MMA and first you know made it legal and they were boxing commissions. They didn't know MMA and once they started talking to people that had the MMA experience, they realized okay, we can't do these same day weigh-ins. We have to do it day before. Now you want to go backwards. I just don't get it. And even if they do get a few other states that go along with it, you're still not the ABC. What power base do you really have outside of the states that you you regulate? You know, the ABC could be more than that. It could be more than that if everyone worked together and put their personal differences aside. The ABC has a shot to be a real power player and a difference maker. Any rogue organizations out there that, that breaks off with, with a few dissidents in, in a few states that are willing to back it, they'll never have a strong power base. No, I mean, it's one of the things of you have to evolve. And Mike Mazzoli and his direction of the ABC has it evolving. You look at the things that they're doing. I mean, and look, they're not done making changes, folks. This is going to continue. And, you know, I've said on this podcast multiple times it's in the past is under the previous regime of the Association of Boxing Commissions, they were not relevant. They you know. weren't. I'm, I got to cut you off because you made an awesome point there, Jason, and I want to expound on that because I have firsthand knowledge. I would go to all these states, and they would tell me. You know, we would talk about the ABC conference, and most of them would say, "We're not even going. I, we're, we're not even. We're appropriating the state funding that we had to go there. We're, we're going to put it into something else. It's pointless. We, you know, we went the last couple of years. It's pointless for us to go. We're not going. You had so many people that were withdrawn." From the ABC, they were a part of it, but they were essentially withdrawn from a a passionate from a passion standpoint, from a tension standpoint. They weren't putting anything into it. And Mike comes in, and suddenly a lot more of these states that had been abstaining from going out to, to traveling and investing to, uh, to attend the ABC annual ABC meeting, suddenly they're back in there. What does that tell you? Exactly. I mean, and you look at all the committees they put in with you know the, the obviously the rules and regs. Uh, there also is a medical committee. They talk about the medical side of it. I mean, if 
I when I see people having negative things to say about the ABC with their current regime, I'm like, I go, why? Because if if it's about you know, you know the previous regime and you th- like, what makes you think they were doing what's good for their sports? It's it, it just baffles me. It, it really just baffles me. And you know, and I think I said it on this podcast before, it's are you Team Missouli, Foster, and Bennett, or are you Team Lukenhoff, Limbo? And I mean, let's be honest about it. Well, I don't know if you can put Lembo in there with Tim. I think Nick is more like Switzerland. He's kind of taking. Okay, a you put you, you would put Bernie with, Bernie, with uh, yes. Lukanoff. Yes. You know, but I mean, and, and look, if you're going to side with one side, people are going to side with Missouli, Foster, and Bob Bennett of Nevada. Well, they already sided with Mike. They elected him. He didn't. He didn't kill anyone to get that position. He didn't, you know, execute a military coup to become the, the head of the ABC. He ran for it and he got elected. He got, he had enough support. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, they're relevant. I mean, that at the end of the day, the ABC is finally relevant again, and it's a good thing with this sport. It's an absolute good thing. The moral to these stories that we've been talking about, Jason, is you've got a lot of people out there claiming to be all about the fighter and being advocates for the fighter when in reality they're putting their self-interest ahead of the fighter. I don't know how many times I've said it on this show, but it's a massive issue. I'm sick of it. These fighters are out there risking their physical well-being, their lives. They don't have time for you to live vicariously through them. Take your issues, take it to another sport, and let's clear the way for people that can really do things for the fighters and advance this sport and make it a safer, better industry, a better sport, a better whatever you want to call it. Because as great as it is, there's still a lot of room for improvement, but it's not going to change if you've got these people masquerading around with their egos try, and, and trying to pass it off as something different. You talk, we talk about evolving as a, a sport, of what's going on with the ABC but also talk about evolving as a sport. There was an article that initially I saw on SportsIllustrated.com about Bellator and Scott Coker as you know this digital, as they're you know trying to grow their product digitally. And you know obviously, uh, Bubba Jenkins and Georgia Carahanian are, are going to be a part of, of their preliminary card coming up here. And uh, you know, look, I understand what Bellator is trying to do, Sam. I, I completely understand the, the thought process they're going. But then I also I look at the four fights that are on that television card, and I go, "Yeah, you probably should have Georgie and Bubba on that on that main card." I understand what they're doing, but I don't understand. In theory, I understand it, but I don't think they're equipped right now to build out their the digital their digital play. They don't have the roster, and they've relied heavily on ticket sellers, and that dates back to the old regime. And it's not like they just had ticket sellers on their local guys for the sake of having local guys. There was a real need, and there was a real financial impact and a real financial benefit to doing that. Now, if you want to build up your undercards and sign more fighters and, and really try to create depth for your roster, I'm all for that because I think – Bellator long-term is being hurt. Their roster is being hurt because they're not developing those guys. Strikeforce had the benefit of having Strikeforce challengers. They had a budget. They had a platform where they could just put young, new fighters on there, run them out there every couple months continually, and build them up till they're ready for the main show. And right now, Scott Coker doesn't have that same platform with Bellator. And he doesn't even have the undercards to utilize as that. And, you know, if they're willing to do that, 
that's great, but you've got to sign more fighters to do that. I think what they're doing now is the wrong way to do it by taking great fights and weakening your televised card just to build up your undercard. I think that's a mistake because really at the end of the day, as, gr- as important as, a, as, a, as growing of an importance as the digital platform is and OTT plays are, you're a TV product. And if your mm-hmm. TV show is not getting the ratings, not generating enough ad revenue, if that's in trouble, then you've got nothing. Everything else buckles underneath it. And by taking good fights off that just to reappropriate it to the undercard when you don't have the depth, they're not ready for that. They're not ready for this play. They need to sign a lot more fighters really fast if they want to go in this direction. And I think what they're doing right now, I think the timing's off. And and I I think the intent and the idea and the vision's the right vision. But the execution is a problem. Like you said, Jason, I I don't know if taking Bubba Jenkins and Georgie Karahanian off the main card is is a smart move. I think it weakens the televised portion of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think you're talking about the the hardcore fan base. I think you could have said Baby Slice is our feature prelim fight to get people in there. And, you know, we'll see how well he can develop as an MMA I think Baby Slice should be on TV, Jason. Look, if they put him on TV, I would have no problem with it. He's the son of Kimbo Slice, the, one of the biggest rating straws in the history of MMA. His son's making his pro debut. That should be on your televised card. Absolutely. I don't understand that decision. It's great for your undercard. I'm sure they're going to get a lot more hits. But boy, what do those hits generate? I mean, how much what, ad revenue it, is Baby Slice really going to generate on the web? I think he would generate a lot more ad revenue if he was fighting on national TV. And how many web clicks does it? T- how many unique web clicks does it take to say that was a success by putting those fights on the preliminary card? And let me ask you this: you know, I feel like everything's going away from .dot com. Everything's digital, but digital media is social media. It's mobile phones, mobile platforms, it's apps. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you're pushing .com and a business built around .com, I feel that's very 2002. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they, they put their, I mean, they've got their Bellator app, which you can watch uh, the preliminary cards right there straight on the app. Um, you know, obviously it's on every, every MMA website that's out there. Um, but should it be on those websites? I think everything should be pushed to the app. And I think that app shouldn't just be something that you download to your phone or mobile device. I think it's something that should be promoted on Apple TV. It should be something that's available on Chromecast. I mean, you know, just like the UFC has an app on all those platforms, there should be a Bellator app that's already preloaded on all of those those platforms. Oh yeah, I mean that's I mean when you're talking about the OTT play, it's got to be on the devices you mentioned, Roku. Chromecast, Apple TV, I mean, all those things. It's got to be a part of that. And OTT uh, Play doesn't include .com. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's it, – it, but at the end of the day, Sam, we, you talk about Bellator. I mean, they have to do things different than the UFC. So, you know, are, are you talking about – are you going away from those local ticket sellers? And really financially, can you go away from those local ticket sellers? Unless you want to do 15 to 16 fights and start your shows at 3 in the afternoon, and God knows – we did that when I was at Bellator a couple times. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It, it, sometimes I'd be like, man, they're starting like 4.30. I got to get there pretty early, you know. But, uh, you know, and but I always the, the thing I always liked about coming to the, the venue early is it was very clear to find out who you knew who the local ticket seller was because he was the one with the fans all out in the, in the, in the parking lot. Yeah. 
it, it was uh, very easy to kind of find out who they were. But you know what? We got asked about you know the the building of the young stars in Bellator. You know, mentioned about uh, various guys and could Bellator make the legit stars? But uh, and this came from uh, at MMA underscore guy where he said he goes, "Is Spike the right platform?" to make these guys and, and ladies into the legit stars. Yes, and they've already answered that question. Look at Mike Chandler. Look at Daniel Strauss. Look at Pat Curran. Look at Patricio Pitbull, Patricky Pitbull. All these guys that you did not know about six years ago are now household names if you follow the sport of MMA, yeah. not just the UFC. If you follow the sport of MMA, if you follow MMA as a sport, you know all these guys, and they were all – Broken big. They all broke big on Spike TV. They didn't break big on Fox Sports Net or MTV2. It was Spike TV. So Spike TV can make stars. The issue is it's a long-term investment. It may not, you know, the, the ROI for a company like Viacom and Spike TV may not be big enough for them. Maybe that's why they've gotten away from that and are focusing on more established stars. But at the same time, you're not giving yourself a chance to develop a deep roster or even a chance to develop the stars of tomorrow if you're not getting the top prospects, if you're not in the mix every time a top prospect comes to the forefront, if you're not going head-to-head with the UFC for those guys, and granted, you're going to lose more often than not, but you've got to win enough battles that you get those guys on the roster so that you get the next Pitbulls, that you get the next Chandlers, that you get the next Will Brooks. I mean, Will Brooks is in the UFC doing his thing, but Will Brooks made it big in Bellator. Same thing, Eddie Alvarez. Eddie, yes, Eddie Alvarez was not a Bellator creation. Granted, he, you know, he developed a huge regional following and fought on national promotions, but he did not reach his apex as a national draw, as a national star until he was in Bellator. Hector Lombard, same thing. These are guys that, that, that grew to be big time guys, but they had to start somewhere and someone had to reach out and sign them, go head to head with these other organizations, bring them in, invest in them and bring them to term. And well, if you're not going to go through that process, then you never have a shot. And once your established stars retire or even go back to the UFC, you could find yourself in a very, very bad position where your roster is completely bare. You cannot rely exclusively on young talent, and you cannot rely exclusively on, on veteran stars. You've got to have a mix of both. You've got to attack both segments very aggressively, you've got to be able to win both categories. You've got to have your wins every day. You've got to have your prospects that you're signing every week. You've got to have your stars that you're signing every couple of months. But you can't just focus on one over the other. It has to be a marriage of both philosophies or else you have no shot to be a legitimate number two promotion in comparison to the UFC. And one advantage I, I felt that when you were with Bellator was the tournament format, it, it, it got you interested in those fighters because you were seeing them three times that they made a run in a 90-day period, it got you invested in those fighters. And I think the key thing for Bellator going forward is how do you get your fan base invested in a Joey Davis? How do you get your fan base invested into Kevin Ferguson Jr.? And just go on and name the fighters. To me, that's the key in terms of can they make those guys stars? Can they, Can you get them invested? And let's be honest about it, The biggest way to get these invested is sitting down with these fighters, find out their story, and then pitching that story to media outlets. Towards the end of the Bjorn Rebney regime, I was not a fan of the tournaments, and I wanted us to, to get away from it. But in hindsight, I think that you know Bjorn's – heavy reliance and dedication to doing an all, almost entirely alternate format was was wrong but i think also scott coker going the exact opposite direction and basically eliminating tournaments altogether with the exception of, of a couple single night tournaments 
I think that's wrong as well. I think there should have been a happy medium. I, you know, the concept that I've been thinking about lately, you know, you look at the Ultimate Fighter, it's essentially a tournament that's a reality show. But what if you took away the reality show and you took eight unsigned guys in a weight class and said they're not Bellator fighters? They will be fighting on Bellator TV, but we're going to do a tournament over the course of the next three, four, five, six months with eight guys in this weight class, the best eight guys not signed to a major, major organization, and the top guy that wins that tournament, the one guy left standing, is now a Bellator fighter. Because now you have that tournament format, you have that built-in storyline, and you're introducing new mm-hmm. talent and building them up. And you still have the optionality to sign the second, third place, and fourth place finishers. You know, if you're a smart promoter, you get the contracts written a certain way where you can retain all those guys. But now you're doing a tournament format. You have a built-in storyline. It's an easy thing to explain to the to the, the to the uh, to, to the viewers. It gets them invested, and there's a continuity there that isn't there right now with Bellator. I don't feel like Bellator's building towards anything. You tune in, you watch a show, and it's a standalone event. You're not necessarily drawn or ready to invest in the next event because you really don't know what the future direction is. Whereas you do some of these tournaments, it gives you that established storyline for the existing show that you're doing, but it also allows you to promote and build toward the future. And there's some clarity there. And, you know, I think Scott Coker should look at doing some contenders tournaments and some, you know, unsigned fighters tournaments. Let's get the top eight guys that we can sign at 55 and put them all in the mix, put them in a tournament. And, you know, the winner is going to be, you know, a Bellator fighter that's going to get a big contract. I'm telling you, it sounds like you're giving a little unsolicited uh, advice there, Sam. I think I am. Maybe they'll they'll listen to uh, into that. But uh, you know, obviously, their next event is coming up next week: uh, Benson Henderson versus Patricio Pitbull. And uh, you know, obviously, I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to Patricio later on this week. I have a feeling that he is going to be uh, pretty ramped up because uh, I think he, if you look at his social media. Um, and, and I'll say this, any, you know, when it comes to drug testing, there is no one louder about wanting drug testing in Bellator than the Pitbull brothers. You know, they are guys, yeah. and I've even talked to executive directors about this, where they will literally start yelling at executive directors about how they want drug testing. I mean, they, 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 you know, they're very adamant about Love those that. guys. I love the Pitbulls, man. They, they are uh, they're true warriors. I, yeah. I really, they're like, they are legitimate fighters. I have the utmost respect for those guys. You know, we got a question about uh, Patricio Pitbull, and it was asked about in your experiences with Patricio Pitbull, and I know the answer to this question, but has he ever discussed about wanting fights at other weight classes? And, uh, Sam, I, I, it's simply, should we just go all caps, Y-E-S, yes, yes, yes? Well, I, I have a little bit of a different take. With, with, with Patricio and even Patricio, it was never about weight. You know, there I, there was a couple times where, you know, through translators or even, you know, trying to communicate with him in, you know, broken Portuguese or broken English, where I joke with him about going down to 35. And, and he would say, no, 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 no. You know, I, there was people in his camp that I think wanted him to go to 35, and they would put that out there. But when I would ask him about it, he would shake his head and laugh. Like, you know, and it was, unfortunately, it was usually during the, you know, when we were on at the event and he was in the middle of his cut. But. If you, so if you ask Patri- if I had asked Patricio, hey, do you want to fight? You know, do you want to cut down to one thirty-five? The answer would be no. But if I, if you go to him and say, hey, do you want to fight Joe Warren? And Joe Warren's only going to fight you at thirty-five. Patricio would say yes. It was never about weight. It was about the opponent who well, he, he could w- fight. He still wants that Warren fight. <laughs> Right. And, you know, if you said, hey, Patricia, you're going to become a bantamweight? No. But if you said, hey, we can make this fight against Joe Warren, but you got to go to 135, then the answer is yes. Same thing with Chandler. Does Patricio necessarily want to fight at 155? 
it's probably not one of his top goals, but he wants Chandler. That's where Chandler fights. Patricio is a true fighter. He's going to go wherever the guy that he wants to fight is. But if you just said to Patricio, hey, at least this is, was my interpretation of the comments that I always got from him and, and, and his management. If you said to him, hey, do you want to fight at this weight class, this weight class? It was never about moving up and down in weight, weight classes. It was about fighting specific people like a true fighter has in mind. Yeah, I'll tell you what. In that fight coming up next week, Vincent Henderson has everything to lose in that fight. Patricio has nothing to lose. I know, exactly. I mean, that was kind of my point. Is is really, I mean, obviously, you know, it would be an L on his record, but Vincent Henderson's got everything. I, I can only imagine what the stories would be like if Patricio Pitbull pulls off that win next Friday night. I would say he's definitely an underdog, and he's going to be outgunned, but you can never count Patricio out especially with his striking ability and his power. You know, Ben Henderson makes one mistake. Patricio is going to put him down. And if, if Ben Henderson goes down, he, Patricio is literally a pit bull. He, he's not, you know, you're, you're not going to get a second chance. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to capitalize on that, you know? So it's, it's going to be an interesting fight. You know, at the end of the day, I think size is going to be an issue, but you can never count Patricio Pitbull out in a fight. Never. I mean, it's going to look like a Walter White fighting a 145er. It may not even look like a 145er because I've been around Patricio. He, he, he's, he's jacked and he's built and he's in great shape, but he's not a tall guy. He, I, whenever I saw him, I thought this guy definitely could make 135 if he changed some of his workout habits and, you know, maybe changed his diet. He's not very t- – I mean, he's a small 45er. If you ever stand next to him, he's – you know, it's – when I stand when I would stand next to him, I, would, I felt like I was next to a bantamweight. And he, if he hears that, he's probably going to take offense to that. Believe me, he's got the heart and the tenacity and the skill level of any heavyweight, any light heavyweight. But he, you know, he he, he fights bigger than he really is. Yeah, I mean, so I'll be talking to him later on this week. Looking forward to talking to him about his fight coming up next Friday against Benson Henderson. But one final thing we want to mention before we get out of here on this week's edition of the podcast is I know something that you wanted to talk about is the people who think that we're going to see MMA in the Olympics. Yeah, if you're one of those people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop drinking. I want you to get off your medications. I want you to come back to reality. Maybe go to a doctor, you know, and start working out some of your issues because we're not going to see Olympics. We're not going to see the MMA in, in, in Olympics. It's, it's not going to happen. It's a very un-Olympic-like sport. And granted, the Olympics has changed over the years, and now it's driven by money and not by sport and, and, and sport, sportsman-like pursuits. But who's going to put the money up to get MMA in the Olympics? And how, from a logistical standpoint, are they going to make that happen? You've got only got three weeks to do the to do these tournaments. You know how, from a safety standpoint, are you going to have someone fight three to four times in an MMA tournament over the course of three weeks? How are you going to do that safely? And how are you going to do that in a way where the tournament has any sense of legitimacy? in regards to, you know, people winning and then being able to continue, you know, you're going to have a winner of an Olympic MMA tournament potentially be a guy that lost in the first round and just wins through attrition. It's useless. It wouldn't work. It's not logistically feasible, but you know what I would love to see Jason. I'm surprised that it hasn't happened. I'm disappointed that we're not seeing it in Rio of all places. I'm disappointed that we don't have sport jujitsu as a Olympic event. I think that is perfect for the Olympics I would love to see that push. To me, that has a realistic shot at happening. I guess that they, I guess you know whatever the governing body of, of sport jujitsu is. I guess it hasn't just it hasn't thrown enough money in the direction of these Olympic officials. But you know, it, it, you know, let's let's 
let's get some, let's get the Sheik. Let's get the Sheik involved. Let's get hit. You know, he's a big MMA fanatic. I mean, a big uh, jiu-jitsu fanatic. Let's, you know, let's have him maybe take a few, a few less private lessons from world-class black belts instead of paying 10,000 an hour. Let's see him put some of that money towards uh, greasing some of these Olympic uh, officials' uh, uh, pockets, and let's see sport jiu-jitsu get involved in MMA, uh, get involved in the Olympics. I'll be honest, Sam. I have not watched much Olympics. I've not watched much of it, but what I've seen, you know, has been pretty good, especially the judo. You know, watching the judo and just seeing how that's presented and seeing the intensity of that, you know, I'm just watching this, and I'm like, man. How cool would it be if we could have jujitsu in the Olympics? It's perfect for this. Honestly, I've watched uh, some of the uh, men's basketball. Um, I saw some of the swimming. Man, the men's basketball team, USA, we're – it's not – I mean, look, they're it's winning, not, but let's, – Let's stop calling this the dream team first off because uh, I grew up in the dream team era. Those games weren't even close. No, and they weren't even playing you know, to their fullest potential in a lot of cases. They were going out partying the night before and still blowing out teams by 50 to 70 points. Yeah, if no one's ever seen the documentary that was done on the 92 men's basketball team, you really should check it out. Really great stuff. Also, I'll tell you, if you're a Netflix watcher like I am, Last Chance You is a definitely a recommended viewing where it followed around a junior college college football team last year. It's only, uh, it's only six episodes, so it's not like it's going to take too much of, of your time, but uh, that's a good Netflix show that I, I just binge-watched. I'm going to check that out. I appreciate that recommendation. Yeah, if you're if you're a football fan, it's definitely it's, it's pretty interesting in kind of, you know, just kind of how college football does work. Of course, you can follow myself on Twitter, at Jason underscore Floyd. Follow Sam on Twitter, at Sam Kaplan MMA. I won't get a chance. I've got a football game on Saturday. On Saturday. As I'll be in Jacksonville, so uh, for the most part, we'll not be able to see UFC 202 live. So uh, I, I know, I already know. I'll tweet you all the results. I'll text them to you, and I'll tweet them to you oh, during uh, the game. Uh, okay, Jason? Hey, let's be honest about it. Whenever Nate Connor ends, I guarantee you, my whether it's the Bleacher Report app or the ESPN, I'll get a notification of who won that fight. Oh, uh, you're not even going to try to not be spoiled? You're just, you're just submitting already? Oh, I already know it's going to be spoiled. I mean, come on. You can turn off all those notifications. But you got to remember, during a broadcast, I've got my Twitter wide open, so I, you know, so I, I got to see things that with with the Bucks, whatnot, and uh, so I'm not going to be able to spoil it for you. No, no, I'm going to be spoiled gonna by somebody else. Okay. Oh no, yeah, I'm going to know exactly what happens. I mean, I would love if we would get back to Tampa right before Connor and Nate, and I could watch the fight on my phone. That'd be great. Can you guys watch it on the plane. I mean, it's the NFL. You guys are ballers. I don't know if we have Wi-Fi on the planes this year. We're we're on different uh, airline this year, so. Uh, uh, it's, it's the, you're the you guys are the NFL. How do you not have Wi-Fi on your plane? Have you ever done Wi-Fi on an airplane? Yes, it sucks. I've never watched like you know a live sporting event. Oh, I remember. I, I've bought the uh, the Wi-Fi in in my various travels, and uh, I remember one time I, I bought it, and I was like, I could barely get anything. I was like, this was a waste of money. Got to have Jameis Winston make a call to the uh, airline and, and complain to the Players Association. Get whatever that plane is, whatever number it is, get that Wi-Fi upgraded. So you yeah, guys can well, watch I think it, I, Conor you, McGregor I, versus Nate Diaz on, on the plane. Sam, I have flown every airline there is. I've yet to find a great Wi-Fi. I, I just haven't. I mean, I uh, usually on the planes, I sit there and watch movies. That's kind of but of course, a, a flight from uh, Jacksonville to Tampa I mean, literally, you get up in the air and you're already descending. It's yeah, not, that's it's, true. It's not a far flight that's at true. all. I mean, it's probably 35, 40 minutes, maybe. 
Yep. I mean, if that, but uh, we'll have a uh, we'll have a uh, cover. I'll have coverage of, of UFC two hundred two on the mmareport.com. Also, uh, starting to do the whole video interviews via Skype, so people can check those out. I actually uh, just did a interview with a fighter, Sam. That uh, we started off the interview by talking about his nickname, which is D's Nuts, <laughs> explaining how he got that nickname. Is that Quentin Jackson Jr.? <laughs> no, it's a guy. It's an amateur fighter who's going to be fighting for. Uh, New England fights coming up on there. These uh, nuts. I yes. haven't heard that since fifth. That was a very popular term when I was in fifth grade. Yeah, yeah. He, he went into how he how he got that. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't want to know how a, a male fighter got the term "D's nuts." I, I just hope that he gets to the UFC and Bruce Buffer has to say that, or does the UFC try to PC it up? Could you imagine Bruce oh, Buffer man. yelling that? The new, I, bet, I bet the Fertitas would let it fly, but these new owners, they're not going to let these nuts fly. No oh, way. Could you imagine if he was on a Fox broadcast? Oh. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. Between him and... Uh, Gold, Goldberg would probably botch it anyway. He would probably him, you know, read, the, read his notes and pronounce it a different way, like D... D nuts. <laughs> Between him and uh, Taruto saying he, he loves his women. Can't wait! Can't wait for him to be on a Fox that broadcast. That is going to be the main event of UFC 300. These nuts first. I love my bitches. Yeah. By, by the way, as we wrap it up here, it's being uh, reported out there by uh, Jeremy Botter. Tim Kennedy returning to the Octagon UFC 205 against Rashad Evans. Wow, that's a fun fight. I like yeah. that fight. Is, yeah. is Rashad going to 85 or is yeah. Kennedy going to 205? I believe Rashad's going down to 185. Uh, that's going to be a good fight. Yeah, it'll be interesting fight. to see what, you know, obviously Rashad, he's, he tries to revitalize his career. But, of course, uh, you definitely want to check this show out, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, MMAinsidersPodcast.com, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Radio Influence, a ton of places to check out this episode. Sam, as always, man, great talking to you, and we'll talk again next week, man. Talk to you then. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence.